And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh-Yee, as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. I'm joined this week by a good friend of mine, Father Simon Squee, Archpriest and Vicar General for the Ukrainian Catholic Epoch of Australia. Welcome to the Catholic Toolbox, Father. Uh, welcome, George. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you here for the first time on the show. And uh, after many attempts, actually, to try and get you, I know you've been running around New South Wales um, in light of what's happened in Ukraine. And uh, it's, it's probably a very difficult time for you and your community. Indeed, it is. It's an extremely difficult time. Uh, we're in uncharted territory. Um, uh, you know, uh, every day presents new challenges, but at the same time, uh, every challenge is met with God's grace. Exactly. And uh, look, it, it travelled the entire world. I mean, the news that, you know, well, there was talk about invading Ukraine and then finally it actually happened. I think people were not prepared for the re reality of an invasion. I mean, people were just thinking that, yeah, these are just open threats, you know, it's just diplomatic wording. And uh, did it shock you when Putin decided to invade Ukraine? Um, yes and no. Um, I think most Ukrainians expected an invasion um, of some sort. Um, we were hoping the, yeah, we thought the invasion may be restricted to the two uh, areas of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, where the uh, puppet regimes of Putin um, were established eight years ago. Uh, because in those two, uh, we call them in Ukrainian oblasty, so it's equivalent to a state. Um, the, uh, the Russian uh, uh, puppets have uh, created their own rump states, but they only had half the territory of those two provinces. Um, so we thought that maybe the invasion uh, would only be to um, gain the territory of the full province, of Luhansk and, um, and uh, uh, Donetsk. Uh, but after Putin's speech to the Russian people, uh, basically the day before the invasion began, I think then we knew that this was gonna be a total war on the whole of Ukraine. I mean, it's not really labeled as a war. I mean, that's, that's I think our modern times today where we label things as an operation. Really well, no, that's, that's what Putin calls it. Putin calls it a peacekeeping operation. Um, others keep referring it to as the Ukrainian crisis. Um, last week, President Putin declared war on Ukraine. And by declaring war on Ukraine, he has declared war on Western democracy. He has declared war on a scale that has not been seen since 1939-45 and that's 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 the shocking truth and we can cloud we can use euphemisms we can call bombs are falling from the sky missiles are being fired and people are dying and uh let's call it what it is it's a war i mean yeah we, we definitely have to call things as they are and it is a war but let's, let's go into the spiritual heritage of Ukraine. Let's, let's speak about, I think Ukraine acts as an example for us as Christians 
and what we can be. What's the spiritual significance of Ukraine? I want to talk about that. I don't think there's much talk in the media about that. You know, there's just about the situation and the geopolitical matters. But let's talk about the spiritual uh, significance of Ukraine and what it represents for the rest of the world. Uh, you uh, being of Ukrainian descent and uh, the Vicar General of the Ukrainian Epochy, uh, enlighten us regarding the spiritual significance of Ukraine and the example it can set for the rest of the world. Well, that's a, that's a huge question and one that probably I can't do full justice to in the time allotted to me today. I, I think we have to start back in nine, 988, the year that the uh, that uh, great Prince uh, Volodymyr, who we now title Saint Volodymyr, decreed that the people of the state of Kiev and Rus uh, were to accept, were to, were to be baptized into the Christian faith. And the legends of the time say that, say that um, Prince, great grand Prince Volodymyr uh, sent his emissaries to all parts of the world to choose a religion suitable for his people and a delegation went to Constantinople and they attended the divine liturgy in the great church of Hagia Sophia. In the Byzantine. And they, yeah, and they reported back to the great prince uh, that they felt that they had been transported to heaven. This is a legend. Uh, the great prince's grandmother, Princess Olga, or Olha as we call her, uh, was baptized a number of years beforehand uh, in Constantinople. Uh, and so uh, the year 988 is the year that Ukraine officially became Christian. At that stage of history, it was known as Kievan Rus. And I'll get back to that word later. Um, uh, because Rus, uh, is a word that uh, has been misinterpreted through many centuries, if not through a millennium. That suggests possibly uh, Russia, Ukraine. Exactly, Russia. exactly. Yeah, those are my Now, um, the one thing that we have to be aware of is <laughs> what was the state of the church, of the, of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in 988? Um, and we know that at that time, the great schism, that great wound into the mystical body of Christ had not yet taken place. Um, that was to come, you know, a few years later um, uh, between Rome and Constantinople. So when Ukraine was baptized, there was the one church. Ukraine was baptized into the Byzantine lung of the one church. And so we treasured our Byzantine heritage, um, our Byzantine liturgy, and we practiced our Orthodox faith, remembering what, what, is, what does the word Orthodox mean? orthodoxis, 
the, the right or the true practice of the faith. Now, for the first centuries, our bishops were Greeks. The Christianity spread. And, uh, you know, eventually um, the, uh, the church became more Ukrainianized um, through, uh, through centuries. And uh, um, Ukrainians became bishops. The Greek language was supplanted by the ancient language of Kiev and Rus, which uh, was common to many parts of the Slavic world. And that is what we now refer to as uh, Church Slavonic or Old Slavonic, which is very similar to Ukrainian. Uh, it is quite different in some parts, but similar to modern Ukrainian. Um, and the church continued to grow. However, then you have to look at geography and Ukraine is at the crossroad of the European Asian continent. It is in the middle of East and West. If you draw a line from, the, uh, from France right across to Vladivostok, or if you draw a line from the South, from you know, the Black Sea to the North, you know, Ukraine's in the middle. And so it is a strategically important territory for every empire, for uh, every um, dictator, for every um, uh, invader. And one of the reasons for this is because Ukraine has immense natural resources. And one of the greatest natural resources that Ukraine has is its soil. It has often been referred to and is still referred to as the breadbasket of Europe. I read recently that um, Ukraine, uh, you know, Ukraine um, has on its territory 40% of the world's black soil. We call it Chernozem. It's the most fertile soil in the world. Australia, uh, Ukraine is one of the is the largest producer of sunflowers. It's one of the largest producers of wheat. I think it's number five or six. And you've got to remember that. Um, that uh, you know the territory compared to Australia or, 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 or the United States or Canada is, is, is quite small. It's, uh, it's a bit bigger than France. And so over the centuries, um, invaders came and went, but the Ukrainian spirit and the Ukrainian faith remained. And uh, I'm not going to give a whole history lesson now, but Faith is at the center of Ukrainian life. And not just spiritual life, but also cultural life. Um, not long after baptism, you know, I think about uh, Prince Yaroslav the Wise built the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia in Kiev, the capital. Um, why Hagia Sophia? Because Hagia Sophia is the church from which Ukraine received its baptism. That's amazing. And, that has become, and that's the mother church yeah. of, of all Christians in Ukraine, Catholic and Orthodox. We can then fast forward to the year uh, 1596. Ukraine had been divided up. Parts of it were with Russia. Parts of it were in what was then known as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. 
and the bishops of Kiev and other dioceses in Ukraine, as well as what is now in the territory of Belarus, um, signed the Union of Brest-Litovsk, bringing what was then a separated church into full communion. Now, we can talk about, you know, uniatism. Is that the way to reunite churches? And of course, since uh, for many years now, the, the Catholic Church has said that's not the, uh, that's not the way you do it. Um, however, yeah, at that time, the world was a different place. And uh, so it was the Bishop of Kiev. Yeah, just to stop you there. Uh, so for those of our listeners who don't know what unitism is, that was the point in which the Ukrainian Orthodox recognised the Pope as the head of the church and successor of Peter and wished to rejoin, you know, uh, to counteract the schism of 1054. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And look, there were probably political motives for it. Um, there always are. There, you know, the, the relationship between church and state throughout the Christian world for many years was one fraught with, uh, you know, a love-hate relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, you did as the emperor did. The, the religion of the king is the religion of the people. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, it was the bishops of central Ukraine and northern Ukraine, which is now in parts of Belarus, uh, they signed the document of union. Um, whereas the bishops of western Ukraine came to the party a hundred years later. Um, so the parts of Ukraine that are Catholic now um, were not Catholic at the time of, uh, of, of the Union of Brest. Yeah. One of our bishops, of course, not long after the Union of Brest, was the Archbishop of Polotsk, which is uh, now in Belarusia. And that was uh, Archbishop um, Yasofat Kunsevich, who we now know as the Holy Martyr, the Saint Josephat, uh, the Martyr for Christian Unity, um, who gave his life for his people and uh, um, his relics are now entombed in St. Peter's Basilica in the altar of St. Basil the Great. Many pilgrims to Rome would have seen uh, his, glorif his glorified I relics in, myself, yeah. it's, uh... in full vestments there in St. Peter's. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry the phone does go off. I'm, I'm in a parish. I won't answer you it. Are, it, is, it is a busy time. I, and I'm really it is an extremely busy. They can, really they can leave me, me with and me. I'll I, get back I know, to we, I know we struggle to sort of get... <laughs> time frame, but time. prepared for that, you know. Thanks, Father. Yeah. Um, so let's continue. Uh, um, for for those who, um, for those who want to understand that there is a there is a Ukrainian Orthodox Church <coughs> and a Ukrainian Catholic Church, and 1054 was a split of East and West, and that brought forth the Ukrainian Orthodox. And then in the 15th century, like you said, part of the Ukrainian Orthodox rejoined Rome. And now, Karen, what's, this, what's the percentage of Ukrainian Catholics and Orthodox who follow the Bible? Um, in... Look, I think Ukrainian Catholics are about 8 or 9% yep. at the moment. Uh, we're talking about more practice rates. A lot of Ukrainians don't put down the religion. Um, you see, we have to fast forward again to the Russian Revolution. And at that point, the Western parts of Ukraine, up until the Russian Revolution, were a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and then Poland whereas the central and other parts of Ukraine were a part of the Russian Empire. Now, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church 
you know, vanished. It, it, it was absorbed by the Russian Orthodox Church in the 15th, 14th, 15th century. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the Russians moved the, the head of the church, I think, first from Kiev to Novgorod and then from there to Moscow. Um, and uh, the influence of the Russian church on the, on the Orthodox people of Ukraine became quite profound. Um, and uh, with the Russian Revolution, uh, our brothers and sisters in Kiev and, and in central Ukraine tried to refound the Orthodox Church and they, they called a synod and they elected a new head of their church. Um, but again, that was destroyed by, by the Soviet Union. Whereas in the west of Ukraine, uh, we continued, there were the three, three eparchies, three dioceses or four, in fact, uh, uh, that, that continued to survive and, and flourished, uh, firstly under the rule of the Austro-Hungarians and then under Polish occupation and rule. Um, uh, you know, but people often have to, have to remember that a border is a line drawn in a map. And certainly, you know, in Europe in particular, I mean, for Australia, it's easy. We're an island. Uh, our border is uh, defined by the sea. However, in Europe, um, you know, borders were lines on maps that were drawn after the end of a war. And so, you know, there are parts of uh, Poland and Ukraine or parts of Ukraine and Poland. And, you know, uh, you know it's, it's a bit like Northern Italy. You know, you, you go to Northern Italy and, you know, they consider themselves Austrians, not Italians. Uh, but yet it's in Austria. I mean, that's one of the things about you know, the, one of the good things about the United Nations and the whole post-war world was that, right, we've got these borders, they're not going to change. Um, you know, and, and, and that's really maintained peace um, in, in Europe and in many other parts of the world. I mean, wars have broken out for other reasons, um, but borders aren't always that reason. Um, but anyway, back to the spiritual heritage. So the, the West of Ukraine was always Catholic, Greek Catholic, and also Roman Catholic, Latin Rite Catholic. Uh, and that's where our Ukrainian Catholic Church flourished um, and, and grew. And uh, um, the parts of Western Ukraine uh, um, were always extremely religious, still are. And Ukraine is actually extremely religious. Um, uh, there is a far higher practice rate of Christianity in Ukraine than there ever has been in Russia. Uh, the practice rates in Moscow, whilst, you know, we see pictures of a full cathedral in Moscow, I mean, that's, that's not you know, typical of, of, of Russian Orthodox parishes. Um, the practice rates in Ukraine have been some of the highest in the Western world. Um, but Western Ukraine was Catholic until uh, after the Second World War when uh, the Soviet Union took that part over and then in 1946 our church was made illegal and that's when we became known as the the silent church well, the you... church of the martyrs and uh, our, our bishops were all arrested many were martyred thousands of priests and religious and lay people were martyred or sent to the gulag um, and, um, you know, we were, I grew up, um, you know, praying for a persecuted and illegal church. Um, and our church was persecuted, not just by uh, the Russians, 
but by the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, it was the Russian Orthodox Church that started using all of our churches. Uh, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to sign up to the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, so you were a UNIAT, uh, Ukrainian, Byzantine Catholic. You'd have to sign up to the Russian Orthodox Church. If you wanted to continue practicing your faith, yes. Or you went underground, as many did. You know, uh, one of the great things about, say, Cardinal Slippy, Patriarch Joseph Slippy, yep. who spent 18 years in Siberian concentration camps uh, before he left Ukraine, um, he secretly consecrated a bishop. Um, bishop Hrhori Khomeshin, the Bishop of Stanislaviv, uh, blessed Hrhori uh, Khomeshin, martyr, um, before he was arrested, he consecrated three of his priests as secret bishops. Um, Sounds like so, an emergency, doesn't it? Well, I mean, they knew that they would not come out of this alive. Yeah. And uh, they, um, they needed to look after the future of the church. Yeah. Uh, these bishops are recognised as bishops. Uh, if you go to, I mean, everybody's favourite Catholic bishop website, which is, you know, catholichierarchy.org, um, <laughs> you'll find them there. It doesn't have, it's missing information, it's missing, you know, their date of consecration, for example, will give you the year, but not the exact date, but they're recognised as bishops and some of them have been beatified as martyrs because even some of these secretly consecrated bishops uh, ended up being arrested. Yeah. And so our church uh, survived um, in people's homes, in people's hearts, in yeah. the forest, and it survived in the uh, in the diaspora, in the Ukrainian post Ukrainian settlements across the world. Um, and as early as uh, I think uh, 1905, we had a bishop in Canada. Our first bishop there, the Blessed Nikita Budka, he. Um, he was the first Ukrainian bishop in Canada. He then returned to Ukraine and served as auxiliary bishop there. And he was martyred, um, but he was replaced by another bishop. We had a bishop in, uh, in, in Philadelphia. And so that was the nucleus of a church in exile. And then um, the holy Pope Pius XII, uh, in the 1950s, started uh, appointing lots of Ukrainian bishops uh, to the point that we received a metropolitan see in uh, Winnipeg with four suffragan bishops, uh, America metropolitan see in Philadelphia uh, with uh, three suffragan bishops. Yeah. Um, then in 1958, yeah. a bishop in, uh, in Melbourne, uh, in Buenos Aires soon after, in Brazil, um, in England, in France, and in Germany. Uh, and so these bishops were all appointed by uh, Pius XII um, to look after the remnant of the persecuted church. And it wasn't until 1988 when um, we in the West were celebrating a thousand years of Christianity in Ukraine that changes started in the uh, Soviet Union. And for the younger audience, uh, um, such as yourself, George, and uh, others, um, I, I don't think uh, uh, people realise how evil the Soviet Union was. Uh, one of the saddest things I see in this day and age are people romanticising the Soviet Union, you know, wearing T-shirts with uh, Lenin or Stalin on them. 
Yeah. Uh, or, or with, you know, the, the letters, uh, or in English, it looks like CCCP. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan, one of the greatest American presidents, called it the evil empire. And that's exactly what it was. It was the evil empire. It was godless. It was atheistic. I, as a child, grew up in fear of nuclear war, as we all did in the 1970s and 80s. And um, in 1988, Gorbachev was the head of the Soviet Union, and he started talking about glasnost and perestroika, openness and rebuilding. <laughs> and, but he was still adamant that, you know, there'd be no changes with communism or atheism. Our church didn't get legalized. And, uh, you know, but slowly, you know, our church in the catacombs started to emerge. And I think it was in 19, and then we had the greatest figure of the 20th century at that time. Elected in 1978 at the height of the Cold War. And we all know who that is. Uh, Saint John Paul II. Um, he became Pope. That was a turning point in the life of the Ukrainian church because we had a brother Slav from Poland sitting on the chair of Peter. Um, our church began to start looking to him who himself had survived communist persecution. And it took a while. You know, 88, 89, I was in the seminary in 89. And I think it was in 1989 in Rome when I was there, Gorbachev visited Pope John Paul II. And I remember gathering with seminarians and we were holding Ukrainian flags and icons and we were standing on the Via Conciliazione, the big avenue that leads up to the Vatican with our signs. Free the Ukrainian Catholic Church, pray for Ukraine, as Gorbachev's motorcade drove past. Now, there was no change in official Russian policy and Soviet policy, but our underground bishops, of which there were five or six at the time, decided to start holding public liturgies. And they um, came out of the catacombs. They went to Moscow dressed as bishops to petition the legalization of the church. But by 1991, the whole Soviet Union imploded. Um, you know, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, all these states that made up, all the countries that made up the Soviet Union declared independence. And then for Ukraine, that independence was ratified by a, uh, a referendum uh, that I think was 96% or something, I can't remember exactly, pro-independence. And then our church just went and, you know, <laughs> people started storming the Russian Orthodox churches in the West, you know, and chasing out the Russian Orthodox. A lot of the priests, were Catholic in their hearts. And they, they, and one priest in particular, the priest of the biggest parish church in Lviv, um, basically before this happened, before even independence, started praying for the Pope and the Patriarch and declaring that he's no longer Russian Orthodox, but Catholic. Then hundreds and thousands of people moved on St. George's Cathedral and they took it over. And now bishops who had been underground, all of whom who had been imprisoned for a time, who had been persecuted, who were holy confessors of the Catholic faith, um, 
started celebrating the liturgy in our old churches. And so um, it was very much from this religious spirit that Ukraine also gained its independence because our faith and our drive for independence has always come from our, our faith. Um, you know, that has always driven our desire to be a free uh, nation under God. I mean, that's something I definitely learned that it was the Ukrainian Catholic Church that moved, sort of, sort of provoked that freedom further. And, and it's quite interesting because you look at the Ukrainian Orthodox Church today and the whole sort of schism situation in the Orthodox Church at the moment where, and you might want to comment on this, on the, the autocephalous nature of, or the independent nature of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church from Russia. Autocephalous. 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 There you go. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so the Ukrainian Orthodox Church struggled in... In, in, in its identity because of that Russian influence. Is that correct? Well, absolutely. And, and what, what happened in, in 1991 during Ukrainian independence, the Russian Orthodox uh, Archbishop of Kiev, uh, Archbishop Filohet Didosenko, who was Russian Orthodox, declared that he was leaving the Russian Orthodox Church and was now to head the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Now, um, by the Patriarch of Constantinople. Well, no, that took a long time. That only happened two years ago, three years ago. And and, um, the way Orthodox churches operate is by autocephaly, and one church has the mother church generally grants a Thomas, a decree of autocephaly to another church, and um, um, it took a long time. Yeah, as this infant Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which was for a long time called the the Kievan Patriarchate, because he was declared a patriarch, um, you know, no other Orthodox churches recognised them. And that was to a large extent because of the immense power that Moscow wielded and continues to wield in the Orthodox Church. And that power comes from the fact that it is numerically the largest and the richest. And it's the richest, not because of the money that people put in the collection plate, but because the Russian Orthodox Church is a organ of the Russian state. It receives money from the government and then uses that money to support what the government does. Um, and so over many years, over much deliberation, the Ukrainian Orthodox petitioned and received from the Patriarch of Constantinople, His All Holiness Bartholomew, first among equals in the Orthodox world, uh, the Thomas of Autocephaly. The Russian Orthodox Church then immediately excommunicated or left communion. They, they, they stopped communion with the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople. So when the Russian Orthodox Patriarch celebrates the Divine Liturgy, he no longer commemorates Patriarch of Constantinople. For violating uh, the territorial... Yes, they claim, they claim it's their canonical territory. But, you know, Blind Freddy can see, you know, you look at a map of... You, you look at one of these digital maps that shows the changes of Europe 
when Ukraine became a country, when Ukraine received Christianity, Moscow was a swamp. There was nothing there. So, and this, and this comes to the heart. Russia, as we have today, which takes its name from the ancient name of Ukraine, which is Rus, Russia, Russian Christianity came from Ukrainian Christianity. And so Russia is actually the daughter church of Kiev. Wow. So in the Orthodox world, you talk about a mother church and a daughter church. So um, it's a bit like a family tree. The mother church of Kiev is Constantinople. Yeah. The daughter church of Kiev is Moscow. But they've turned around and said, no, Moscow is the mother church. And you're, um, you're, you came from us. And we, the Ukrainian Orthodox said, well, that's nonsense. And now Patriarch Bartholomew has, says, has said it's nonsense. Yeah. Now, um, what then happens in orthodoxy is that you wait for other churches to recognise the um, autocephaly of that particular church. Okay. And, uh, and, okay. and then, so other patriarchs will then commemorate Metropolitan um, Epiphanios of Kiev in their liturgies, and he commemorates them, and you have this communion between the Orthodox churches. Don't forget every Orthodox church uh, is, is a church in its own right. And they are, they are in union together um, by commemorating each other during the divine liturgy. They're self-governing, just like Eastern Catholic churches are self-governing. Oh, yes, yeah, a bit, a bit more than that. Um, you know, it, it, it's a bit stronger than that. But um, for our discussion, we won't go into that because it's too complicated. And I'll probably need a graphic board to describe it all. But what then happens is the other churches, and slowly, like the Church of Greece has recognised, the Church of Alexandria, the Pope of Alexandria has recognised. Um, but because of Russian influence on some of the churches, like Jerusalem and Antioch, who get most of their money from Moscow, they don't want to annoy Moscow and lose their funding because they're poor. I mean, they're in, in majority Muslim countries. Um, you know, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, so they won't recognise. Um, so you get this funny thing of this church is in communion with that church, which is communion with that church, but not in communion with that church. You know, uh, when you look at these, you know, the divisions between the various Orthodox churches, it's then you turn around and say, thank God I'm a Catholic. I'm just thinking that at the moment. Thank God. Because, I mean, as much as we disagree, uh, you know, with certain aspects, you know, the Holy Father, the, the, the successor of Peter, is the unifying factor. And, and, and the Orthodox recognise this. Bartholomew recognises this. That, 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 and I've had many Orthodox priests say to me, they say, you know, you may, you may, you know, we as you know, Eastern Catholics sometimes don't agree with everything Rome does because it's not uh, in our best interest. But they say, thank you, thank God you've got the Pope. At least you've got someone there to unify you, whereas, you know, we don't know who we're in communion with next week sometimes, you know. So the Pope, uh, and I won't call him the Pope, I'll call him the successor of Peter, you know, he is Peter for us, um, is at the very core of, of that unity. But I think things are changing. They're changing between Catholic and Orthodox. We don't, ref the, the Orthodox are not heretics. They're not, they're not I, would, I, I don't even call Orthodox as schismatics. Um, they are our brothers and sisters who are separated from us. Um, and I think that is the great wound in, in, in the body of Christ. 
because we uh, we basically believe everything that they believe and they believe everything that we believe. You can get caught up on the filioque, you can get caught up on the dormition, but both of those have, um, uh, you know, that can be worked through. I really, I, I really think, I mean, the example of the fact that we have the Byzantine churches, the Ukrainian Catholic, the Melkite Catholic Church, the Maronite Catholic Church, all the Eastern churches, all in communion under the Pope, the successor of Peter, acts as an example for the Orthodox to simply come well, in. Well, yes and no. I, I wouldn't go that far. I think, you know, um, uh, see, that's, that's, that's unitism. And that's what the Catholic Church... If we want union between East and West, it can't be, um, it can't be on that level that uh, I'm the Pope and I tell you what to do. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. That would be that would be a great tragedy if that was the only thing that union was to be based on. Um, I mean, the, the the question is far more complex. Uh, the question is far more difficult than that. Um, uh, but we must recognise where the benefits of a of a of a papacy lie. Um, you know, but we've also got to work through over a thousand year a thousand years of. Uh, of division too, and, and uh, these things. And don't now go. we have uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church headed by Petrarch. Uh, excuse my, <laughs> I probably won't. Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav. Who uh, doesn't? Uh, is he a patriarch? And uh, what's the, the, the we uh, we refer to, we refer to him as patriarch. Basically, every bishop and priest in the world, there might be one or two who are holdouts, but basically we all refer to him as patriarch and we commemorate him as patriarch. What is a patriarch? A patriarch is a father and a head. Now, the Holy See doesn't recognise him as a patriarch and um, when Cardinal Slippy came to the Second Vatican Council, um, it was a bit embarrassing that he headed up the largest church in the, um, in in the, the, uh, in the East and one that had been persecuted dreadfully. And so uh, the Vatican, the Holy See, made up, made up a title that had never been used before, and that was Major Archbishop. Um, and uh, it's a made-up title. It's sort of, uh, I don't know if young people remember what a Clayton's is, you know. Clayton's was a non-alcoholic beverage, and they say it's the drink you have when you're not having a drink. So the Major Archbishop is the patriarch you have when you're not having a patriarch. But we, he doesn't call himself as patriarch. He doesn't sign himself as patriarch. But out of love to him and for our church, we refer to him as patriarch and yeah. always will. That's amazing. And let's, let's turn to some three practical tools. I mean, we've gone through the spiritual heritage of Ukraine, the spiritual significance, and the tremendous example that the people of Ukraine are showing with their faith. I mean, just, just the, the couple moved me very much who got married and then quickly after, took up arms to fight for their country. I mean, the current situation, what's going on. But what are some three practical tools that we can okay. take action with in our faith? As an example, I'll definitely be offering my Lenten season now, starting uh, uh, today being uh, Shrove Tuesday or the Mardi Gras. So happy Mardi Gras, <laughs> uh, Father. Um, We've got to we have to reclaim that word. We are, and I'm happily reclaiming it. So, uh, a blessed, uh, not a blessed, but a happy Mardi Gras to you. But preparing, I'll definitely be offering my Lent for the Ukrainian situation. And what are three practical ways people can take action with their faith 
and, and meet their moral obligation to support Ukraine as well on a spiritual and political front. What can we do here in Australia? Well, firstly, 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 as you've mentioned, is prayer. That is the most important thing. Pope Francis has declared Ash Wednesday to be the world day of prayer and fasting for peace in Ukraine. Uh, tomorrow at uh, midday, I'll be celebrating in Wollongong with uh, Bishop Brian uh, at his invitation. Tomorrow evening, I'll be celebrating with the Dean of the Cathedral, uh, Father Don Richardson at St Mary's, and I'll be preaching at that divine liturgy. I encourage any Sydney-based uh, uh, viewers to, to come to St Mary's tomorrow and, and pray with us and for us. So prayer. Offer your Lenten penances. And let's, let's not beat about the bush. This business of fasting and on the Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, what a load of nonsense that is. Yeah. We should be abstaining from meat every Friday of the year, with the exception of, you know, Easter week and a few other feast days. Uh, but let's get back to no meat on Friday. And if you, if you want to do like we do, no meat on Monday, no meat on Wednesday. You know, let's make it a real fast. Lent isn't about just giving up chocolate or what, not watching movies on Netflix. <laughs> you know, let's make it a bodily thing. I mean, in my tradition, we don't eat meat, eggs or dairy yes, or Lent yes. every day, including Sundays. And no fish. No fish. We can eat seafood, but not fish. And no, right? no oil on certain days. And no, and no, and no olive oil. Uh, so, I mean, we, you, Latin, Latin right Catholics have it too easy when it comes to fasting. I mean, fasting yeah, is really looks so offer, offer your prayers. Secondly, and I think this is the most important thing, be informed. Yes. And what I'm going to say now may not impress many of your viewers. And that's okay. Stop following Fox News. Stop following Donald Trump. Stop thinking that Vladimir Putin is the savior of Christian Western civilization. Stop, stop, stop. The things that I see on my Facebook feed, I've had to unfriend people that are, unfriend people that I've known for years because I cannot bear, while my brothers and sisters are dying in the streets, they're putting up things saying Ukraine brought this on itself. This is all a part of the Clinton plot. Um, Putin is a good man. He's anti-abortion and supports the church. Well, I'll tell you this. Russia has the highest abortion rate in Europe, and Putin's done nothing about it. There is no free press. There is no free religion. There is no free democracy. There is nothing. Stop glorifying Putin. To you traditional Catholics, I beg you, Yes, he may speak the truth, but guess who else can speak the truth? Satan speaks truth to deceive us. Satan quoted scripture. Exactly. Exactly. Putin is following in the footsteps of his idol, Joseph Stalin, who butchered millions. He is using religion He's using religion for his own means. And so many good Catholics, so many devout Catholics are falling into this trap of, of idolizing a man who I believe is becoming the Antichrist. I'm not saying he is, but he, for me, 
shows, and I'm not saying that just because I'm a Ukrainian. I'm saying that because it's, I've seen it. My heart has always been with the traditionalist movement. And I've seen the change in people. I've seen the change in young men in particular. And I'm scared. I'm really scared that Catholic young men are looking up to Putin and idolizing him. And then, you know, throwing to the mix, the anti-vaxxers, the, the uh, sovereign citizens movement. Throw, and you make, this is Satan's doing. This is the work of the evil one. You can be anti-vax, you can be anti-mandates, but why put them all together? Uh, it's, that seems uh, it, you know, problem, Father, because people do take elements of what they like, like maybe Putin standing up to something that they, that they agree with and then they don't know the whole facts or, you know, anti-vaxxers yeah. taking one element that they like. or There are vaccine mandates in Russia. I mean, see, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you know, and, and, you know, for me, and I, I love history, a lot of this resonates with what was happening in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, and we know where that ended up. We know where that ended up. And so for the second thing is I beg young Catholics in particular, young, good, traditional Catholics yeah. to be faithful and to see the signs of the evil one. No Christian ruler rains down bombs and missiles on, on, on someone for no reason. And yeah, you can say, oh, he's just protecting Russian interests. Well, I'm sorry. Ukraine has never been a threat to anyone. In its whole history, Ukraine has never invaded another country. It's always been invaded and conquered. And, you know, Putin says Ukraine never existed as a state. Yeah, because it was never allowed to, because of Russians and other countries that kept invading it. Um, so, and the third thing, humanitarian support. If you're, if you, I mean, St. Just Chrysostom teaches us, you know, if we give up food for Lent, the money we save on that, we should give to the poor. Mm -hmm. You know, we should be giving, you know, okay, you save money on buying meat and luxury goods during Lent, but what do you do with that money? Keep it in the bank so you can then splurge after Lent? No, you give that money to the poor. Caritas Australia is running an appeal. Support Caritas Australia's appeal for Ukraine, uh, for humanitarian. And pray for peace, not just in Ukraine, but the whole world. Ukraine's not the only place where there are now refugees and, uh, and, and, and civil strife. You know, you look at the African continent, uh, dreadful things happening there. The Christians uh, of your own heritage, the Christians of, of the Middle East. Now, that's the other thing. They say, oh, well, Putin defended the Christians of the Middle East. Well, no, he didn't. Putin only defended himself because he now controls half of Syria, which gives his navy a port in the Mediterranean. It wasn't, it wasn't a Christian fight. You know, he portrays it as being Christian. At the end of the day, how many Christians did he actually save? Good question. I mean, what's happened to Christians in the Middle East is one of the greatest tragedies of the 20, 20th and uh, 21st centuries, without a doubt, and may even pale into insignificance with what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. But today we're about Ukraine, so, you know, do those three things. Pray, be informed, and be faithful and be generous so they're the three things I mean, that's absolutely tremendous and how can people get it, it, it I, I know you're running some kind of humanitarian aid yourself your own initiative 
Uh, is there any way people can donate and support Ukraine at this well, point? Well, if you if you if you go to um, uh, if you Google Ukrainian crisis Ukraine crisis appeal, it will come up on your uh, click on that. We actually work with that works with Caritas Ukraine. So there are two appeals: there's Ukrainian crisis appeal, yeah. um, which is being facilitated, I think, by the Rotary Club of Australia. But the money goes to Caritas Ukraine. If those who don't know what Caritas is. Caritas is the Catholic International Humanitarian NGO. They do a lot of work in every country of the world. But then Caritas Australia is also doing a, uh, a huge appeal uh, and sending money to Ukraine. Um, and uh, so at the end of the day, both appeals end up with Caritas Ukraine and they've got a huge network. Every diocese, every eparchy has a Caritas office. They have people on the ground. Um, we've been working with them for the last 20 odd years and um, uh, we know the money that's given to Caritas goes to where it's needed. I mean, it's absolutely tremendous. I think I'm very inspired by your example, Father, the way you've been approaching in the media. And there was actually talk, I think, online of how impressed people were with the Australian Ukrainian response. I think you have something to do with that. Uh, look, what does the 115th Psalm say? You know, non novis domine, not unto me, O Lord, but unto you, unto you be all glory and honour and your, and your truth. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not me. I, I, I can tell you I am exhausted. I've been getting through on four hours sleep. Um, the phone start ringing four in the morning for me today. Um, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. I've got on silent at the moment. I've got a lot of calls to look at. Got emails to write. Um, I've got to be at the Sydney Opera House tonight with the Prime Minister and the Premier and the Archbishop, I believe, will be there too. Um, it's just endless and I'm, I'm running on fumes at the moment. Or I shouldn't say fumes, but on God's grace alone. Um, I think my human, my human energy has gone and it's the divine energy that is uh, keeping me going. Um, and uh, we've had wonderful coverage from the Catholic media, from Catholic Weekly. Uh, the Australian media, you know, isn't the brightest at times, but they've been pretty good too. So a shout out to the media. They've done a great job. And you're doing a great job there, George. And thank you for your patience with me, because I think we've set about five different days or times uh, when we can have this chat. Um, so thank you, George, very much. And uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and to all the listeners and, and viewers of uh, Catholic Toolbox, wherever they may be. You're absolutely welcome, Father. I know uh, it, was, it was great to finally catch you, you know, on the more early morning ones, but, but uh, you know, I stand with Ukraine. Uh, Thank you. Our listeners here on the Catholic Toolbox stand with Ukraine and uh, we'll do everything to support, you know, in whatever way uh, you and your- Thank community. you very much. But pray, pray and pray. Pray for the intercession of St. John Paul II and for the martyrs of Ukraine through there. And most importantly, through the prayers of the Holy Mother of God, uh, may she save us. Uh, because Ukraine, Ukraine is the first nation in the Christian world to be specifically dedicated to the Holy Theotokos, to the Holy Mother of God. Uh, and that is something, she, she is our mother and uh, we, we entrust us, we entrust Ukraine to her care. We can please end with your blessing, Father. May the blessing of the Lord be upon you with his grace and love for mankind, always now and forever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. 
Until next week, God bless, take care, and take action.